The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. Okay, you've all had enough of the U.S. election over the past two weeks, so I'm delighted to bring you two different stories for this week's edition. First, we travel to Hong Kong where Robin Mack and Yawen Chen walk us through the decision by Chinese antitrust authorities to unveil draft rules singling out internet platforms for potential monopolistic behavior. It's the latest slap to China's big tech companies, led by Alibaba and Tencent, after securities authorities dinged Ant, the financial services company affiliated with Alibaba and its founder Jack Ma, and derailed its planned IPO a couple of weeks ago. After that, we fly to New York, where I speak to Anna Shemansky and Lauren Silva Laughlin about the market rally inspired by Pfizer's revelation that its COVID-19 vaccine is super effective. Give a listen. Okay, so this week we had uh, the global backlash against technology giants clearly reached across the Pacific to China. Robin, Mac, you're there in Hong Kong. You've been writing about this for us. Pretty interesting uh, what, what we're seeing. There's, there's a few things, but let's let's start with what the antitrust watchdogs uh, unveiled. They, they, these draft rules that singled out internet platforms for potential monopolistic behavior. Tell us a little bit about what how we should read this. Yeah, so... I mean, it's really interesting because this is one of the first times that sort of antitrust regulators in China are targeting directly internet companies like Alibaba, Tencent. So the draft rules are actually quite far reaching. So it covers everything from unfair use of subsidies to even how these companies are using customer data. So it does have far reaching consequences for many of these uh, platforms. So Alibaba, for example, is, you know, like they've been able to sort of skirt a lot of the, you know, labels of being a monopolist or being dominant in their markets. But it's getting much harder for them to do so now, especially with these new rules coming on. Yeah, I mean, you think about uh, this is this is echoing a lot of what we saw or, or there's a lot of discussion about in the United States, particularly with Facebook, uh, Alphabet and others. This one is, it says it's a 22 page draft, which is open to public feedback until the end of the month. Now, like to explain, maybe Yawan, let me bring you into this. I mean, you recently moved to Hong Kong where, from Beijing, uh, where you got to probably uh, a, a much upper, closer personal view of, of how the government operates. Is that public feedback in the People's Republic? How does that actually work in something like this? It's relatively common, but I think the consultation period for this one is pretty short. Just looking at the past track record, I think last time they've had such a short consultation period was when they rushed to roll out the foreign investment law. So it really shows resolve like in terms of they really want this to um, roll out quickly and pass it. I think there was like a very consolidated effort in terms of pushing to regulate those internet platforms, quote unquote, better. And what, I mean, Robin, what is it, what, what could they do? What are the, what remediations or remedies could they propose? I mean, you know, you, I think of the US version, it's like on one extreme, it's break Facebook up, you know, WhatsApp, uh, Instagram, things, or, you know, divest YouTube for Alphabet, or what, what actually is the, what, what could happen to Alibaba, say, or Tencent, who I'd, I'd imagine are the big targets here. 
I mean, I think this is because this is such uncharted territory. I think this is, you know, one of the biggest questions that everyone is quite worried about. So in the past, China has sort of relied on fines, but just even the thought of regulators coming in and trying to break up Alibaba, for example, was pretty much unthinkable just a week ago. Companies have pretty much thrived, you know, largely unchecked in their respective domains. So e-commerce for Alibaba, video games for Tencent. But, you know, increasingly, they've sort of been just expanding really quickly into other areas now. So it could be fines, it could be asset divestitures, it could be spinoffs. I think the regulators have pretty broad range of options to use. Yeah. I mean, it could be just to keep them from getting any more dominant in certain things, right? I mean, if you, if one of the things yeah, is I'm always point. amazed at, yeah, I'm always amazed at how you see all these internet companies or, you know, startups, not just in China, but particularly those that work in greater China. And, and, and you guys always write these stories, oh, you know, Tencent has a stake, a 25% stake in those guys, or Alibaba has a stake in these guys. They seem to have their fingers in all the pies. Isn't that right, Yawan? Yeah, and also it could be even more explicit because, for example, I think Alibaba and um, even Meituan, some of those transaction-based transaction, transaction based, uh, e-commerce websites, they have explicit rules saying if you want to sell as a merchant, if you want to sell products on my platform, it has to be exclusive. And under the current guidance, I think that will be strictly forbidden. So it will really restrict their growth. And this guidance is also modeled up to like a January anti, a revised anti-monopoly law which um, significantly increased the penalty level, I think from just half a million yuan to 10% uh, of the company's overall sales, annual sales. So it could be a very big penalty for the companies if they don't comply. Right, right. Now, this isn't the only sort of slap we've seen from Beijing on the tech companies. I mean, Robin, um, you guys were pretty busy over the last couple of weeks writing about, well, for a month plus, we've been writing about this huge IPO of amateurs, a sort of Alibaba cousin, if you will, in financial services and other things. And they are, and, and, and that was that was clearly like the big capital markets deal of 2020. And all going along swimmingly, it seemed, until all of a sudden out of, uh, well, just a week and a half ago, the government effect of Beijing effectively said, nope, you're not going to, you're going to, you're going to have to delay your listing. Explain what, what, how we should read that, Robin. What, what, what's going on there? So, yeah, I mean, so the, the pace and speed of what happened, like you said, was probably the most shocking aspect. Um, so Ant's, you know, prospectus filing, you know, was public since August and everything had seemed to be going on track and according to plans, it seemed like they were uh, communicating with both regulators in Shanghai and Hong Kong for most of that time. They even had all their retail bids come in and pretty much just two days before the shares would start to tra start trading. The regulators last minute summoned Jack Ma and a few ant executives in for what is widely to believe to be like a, a dressing down because Ma had made some comments at a speech in Shanghai that sort of railed against financial regulators, both globally and within China. But then that very same day, the financial regulators also came out with these new draft rules targeting online lending. And that effectively caused the Shanghai Stock Exchange to say, we need a bit more disclosure and pulled the IPO. So that was just a 
you know, in a span of 48 hours, the world's, mm-hmm. you know, largest IPO was basically uh, derailed, which is zero, really, zero to zero in yes. like a day. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what, what's, I mean, how much of this is, I mean, Jack Ma was, who's the, the founder of Alibaba, of course, and, and uh, I guess must be the largest shareholder of Ant or, you know, one of the, one of the big backers. Is he, how much of this is about reigning in Jack Ma? Yeah, what's your <laughs> Well, Jack Ma has been quite famous for being outspoken. He's got in trouble before, but he managed to really paddle out of his trouble. Um, I think this time his 20-minute speech in Shanghai was really a bit um, harsh on the regulatory efforts that I think China is trying to take. So retrospectively, I think the assumption was that he already saw the micro-lending rules coming and he was trying to do some kind of like get in front of it. And um, I think that really that probably really upset the regulators and prompted them to accelerate and even maybe intensify the crackdown. Yeah, um, so if you come out, you don't fight City Hall is the old expression, right? And I'm sure that's especially true in the People's Republic. But to get out in front to sort of chastise the regulators, who also were following, if I'm not mistaken, certain you know, re, you know, global regulatory practices, right, from the Bank of International Settlements and things like that, to get out in front of that and sort of, I mean, it really kind of provokes. You would have thought the guys at the the, regular, the securities regulators picked up their red phone and called the, the central committee and said something like, all right, do we have the, um, do you have our backs to tell this guy? Yeah, actually, the vice president actually made the opening remark at the same event. Um, so... So it was almost like a public showdown. Um, wow. But I, I guess it also reflects, you know, like China's um, inward looking policy making prospects. Uh, now, um, the, the focus is a lot more on risk control. We've seen that happening with property, how the crackdown just persists, you know, despite of the economic problems they've had with the pandemic. Um, so I guess the the environment has also changed as well. So it's 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 more urgent. I think the regulators felt that they need to rein in Alibaba, maybe Jack right. Ma. Yeah. Now, Robin, you also wrote a piece that said there will be a sort of bit of a fallout from the Ant situation to Alibaba, which is of course a you know the the, the sister company, if you will. How do you see that developing? Well, the, I mean, the two companies have really close ties. So Alibaba has a 33% stake in Ant. Ant's Alipay payments app processes, you know, a lot of transactions on the Alibaba websites. Um, And also it's just, it's all part of the whole digital ecosystem where ants, for example, have access to a lot of spending habits that they can use to score credit and design a lot of credit products around it. Uh, A lot of shoppers on Alibaba would also use quite a lot of ants uh, credit products like virtual credit cards and unsecured consumer credit and whatnot. So the two companies are, are tied really closely together. So what happens to Ant, you know, it will affect Alibaba, not just from a valuation perspective, but also um, from their main e-commerce business. And so where do we go from here on this? I mean, is how how much delayed is the Ant deal? They've returned most of the funds, <laughs> or they're starting to, or in the process of anyways. So it could be months. And I don't think the delay is, is the biggest issue. I think the issue is whether or not Ant will have to restructure its business and whether or not the value, um, you know, which was supposed to be over $300 billion, would fall. Right. 
Yeah. Right. All right. Well, guys, uh, keep up the great coverage on this. And thank you for uh, for popping in. Yawen, this is your first time on the Views Room. So thanks for joining us. And yeah, really Robin, glad to thank be here. you. Yeah. All right. Have a good thanks. rest of the week, guys. Bye. Thanks, Rob. This week, equity markets went completely mad as soon as Pfizer and its partner in creating a vaccine for COVID-19 came out and said they had a they were close to, to fruition. They had like a 90 something percent uh, success rate. Everyone went crazy. Anna Shemansky, you there in Brooklyn have written about this. I mean, what's your take? Like what, what the market seemed to have just done a complete like flip, didn't it? A little bit. We definitely saw some rotation from the work from home or the digital names, you know, especially things like Zoom or Peloton that had just had these enormous um, stock market booms over the period of the quarantine. And then we saw this shift into assets like airlines, hotels, cruises that obviously had been hit massively during the pandemic. So to me, that part of it, you know, makes a lot of logical sense that, you know, if we expected that we may have a vaccine with, you know, 55% effectiveness and we may not have it for a longer period of time, if all of a sudden you we see, okay, it looks like we're going to be getting back to normal a little bit faster, then it makes perfect sense that investors would start to make that shift. Right. So they took money out of the things like the the, the big company, Amazon, all these guys who have been huge, huge beneficiaries of everybody working from home be, or locked up or, you know, not shopping, not going out. And then you saw the money go into like cruise ships and airlines and that kind of thing. But I mean, the, like, where does this fit with this is the equity market theme? What about like in fixed income? Was there a sort of change in the debt markets that, that reflect that as a result of this whole concept? So you saw the. U.S. tenure increased fairly significantly as investors, you know, potentially start to think that there's going to be more growth, that they can um, go into slightly riskier assets, also potentially thoughts about inflation. So what we also saw in the debt market, so that was interesting, was that we saw some improvement in high yield um, debt, which you might not expect in that same environment. But again, because you know, as you had yields increasing, but because there was this expectation that investors could take on a little bit more risk, you did see those assets doing well. Right. And then and then uh, Lauren, I mean, let me bring you in here. You're you're you wrote you, you've been looking at this question of uh, what it mean, means for corporate finance. And we saw a rush of companies earlier in the week uh, go out and try to refinance themselves. So a lot of these kinds of names. I mean, I think American Airlines, a company you know well went out and raised some money. What so what was this like? Were they like aware, ready for this to happen? It was sort of like on the shelf that they would raise capital as soon as there was the 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 rush from the work from home market, or was it? I mean, how did they how did they move so quickly on the dime? Um, yes, they really are. They're sort of waiting for these moments for the equity market to pop. And we've seen it over the last eight months or so. You know, anytime we get like a little bit of news about a vaccine and the market goes up and then they'll issue equity. Um, and of course, we have this big moment, you know, that they had the opportunity to do it. So you've seen American Airlines, which is in a horrible place right now financially. Uh, you know, its valuation really can't even support the amount of debt that it has on its balance sheet. And it's going out and raising equity. And so it makes a lot of sense um, for the companies to take that opportunity. The question is, you know, 
the path of disease and what happens over the next 18 months, whether people not really get back to reality if they're taking flights and other things, um, whether their own corporate valua valuations can um, support anything for the equity holders. Right. I mean, you saw it. So American Airlines is one. You had uh, Lufthansa, the German airline, also raised money. Uh, the U.S. listed cruise operator Carnival also right. raised money. These, are, these were the ones you looked at and you were like, oh, my God, what's going to happen to these businesses if this thing goes on and on? Do you think this is a um, like a value trap? Is that what you're saying? It can be. So if you look at the way recovery rates have been going for bankrupt companies, you know, it seems like even the most subordinated debt holders are getting very little to nothing, um, which suggests that the equity holders of these companies may get nothing if they go bankrupt, too. I, I mean, if you think about some companies like Boeing, for example, it's also been doing really poorly um, throughout the pandemic. But there's an argument for when things turn back around the value of the company is going to increase significantly because they'll have a backlog of orders that they'll have to fill and there'll be a massive demand once airlines return. The question for airlines is whether their own business has fundamentally changed as a result of the pandemic. And, you know, in listening to the CEOs talk about it, even they're unsure, you know, how is travel going to return? And is business travel going to return? They don't really know. And so, you know, there's two questions here. One is whether the businesses come back at all in the next 18 months. And two, when they do come back, is it going to look like it did before the pandemic? And that's a huge risk. It could very well be a value trap for, yeah. for investors. I was talking to the CEO of a very large uh, hotel, a listed hotel company. And, you know, the, their perspective is that 20 to 30 percent of of the, well, let's say that, that 20 to 30% of business travel is gone, gone for good. And and so if you're if you're highly sensitive to that that kind of that market, which may be you know certain hotel companies or certain um, sectors of the airline industry, then you you just have to figure out what the world, you know, that's that's a permanent shift. Anna, what's your like sense? Do you think that there's like the the market investors are getting a little ahead of themselves and thinking that all of a sudden, no, well, work from home's over because everyone in a year is going to have a vaccine and, you know, at least in most Western countries, um, everything goes back to normal or not. Well, I don't really necessarily think that's what the market's saying right now, though, because if you mm. look at some of those work from home stocks, they're still up massively on the year. They just came down a little bit. Same with a number of the leisure names. It's not like they made back all of their losses. They just improved a little bit. And I think that that's rational. Now, if you saw some complete flip that, expected that we would go back to a pre-COVID world, then that would be a different story. But we're not really seeing that yet. Yeah. And and I mean, let's think, what do you think about the political ramifications? All Like, where does that all come into this? I mean, there is, you know, so we're looking at the market, the mar market's taking this, this sort of, you know, the, like the market does, it says, oh, less work from home, more mobility equals good for X, Y, and Z companies equals bad for other companies. But I mean, doesn't isn't there a whole sense of like the, the political dy dynamic that comes into this? And not to mention the fact that like, I mean, it's, it's not like everyone's going to be vaccinated in a couple of weeks. No, there is still a tremendous amount of uncertainty. I mean, this vaccine is one that needs to be stored, you know, at incredibly low temperatures. We, we don't you know, yet know how quickly we're going to be able to distribute this. So I, I do think that there may be a little bit of over-optimism because of that. And then, as you say, we are in a fairly uncertain political environment right now after the U.S. election. And I do think if we do 
expect that now, okay, maybe we will get a vaccine. Then the next question still becomes stimulus. That plays, that factors into how markets work as well. And that is where I think there is just a tremendous amount of uncertainty because we don't know what's going to happen in the Georgia Senate race. And then even if you do get a divided government, we don't know exactly what that means in terms of stimulus. And I think that once investors really start to price in the vaccine, then that still becomes the the next move. Because even though we might not need as much stimulus, if we have a vaccine sooner, we still will need some. Yeah, yeah. And we don't really know whether that's coming. You know, it, it means it's basically an idea to bridge us until you get to a point where a large enough segment of the population or say the, the segment of the population that that would be most vulnerable, healthcare workers or that kind of thing. One other thing I should probably mention is also that in many countries, including the U.S., we are having COVID infection rates going back to what we saw this spring. And that is not going to unfortunately probably go away. Even, you know, we may get a vaccine next year, but we still have to get through this period, which could be very, very challenging. Well, it's happening here. I'm in Switzerland and the, the infection rate is higher than it was um, during the peak. And that's the case in parts of France, Italy. And you're seeing, you know, you're seeing two point, lockdown 2.0. So, right. you know, I mean, the, 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 it's going to come too too late to deal with lock with lock the sort of second wave, as it were. You actually read the book about um, about the 1918 mm -hmm. influenza, though. What so what any lessons yeah, to draw from that? <laughs> well, I mean, that that the that influenza the the second wave was incredibly deadly, but that was also because the the you know the virus kind of mutated and it was a very very different thing. And also the influenza pandemic was different because it killed young people, it killed young adults like that. That was really um, uh, and so that had probably an even you know larger impact kind of moving forward. Not to say that it's not horrible when it's killing older people, but that really did affect um, how people had to deal with it. But at the same time, you, while you, you did have some forms of quarantine, you didn't have what we've seen this time around. You didn't have any type of, you know, nationwide everyone being forced to stay at home, although you did certainly have people wearing kind of masks that they created or people were just terrified. So they were trying to stay away from other people. Right. All right. When, and Lauren, you, you've, you've, you've looked at the question of whether this is a, a value stock trade, haven't you? Yeah, I think what people seem to be forgetting about, and and by the way, this is very much a pre-pandemic thing, it's just carried on, is, is earnings, right? And earnings quality of companies. And so the main thing to look out for is multiples. And everyone seems to have said at the start of the pandemic, oh, you know, don't look at 2020 multiples, look at 2021. And then over the last six weeks, I've been hearing, oh, don't look at 2021, look at 2022. And, you know, the question is, what are earnings at the end of the day what are earnings going to look like at these companies when this is all over and when is the market going to start to pay attention to that um and so i think whoever can really answer that question is going to be pretty far ahead all right well um whoever gets whoever answers that question is going to be richer than the three of us <laughs> what you're basically saying um <laughs> all right guys well thank you very much keep safe and talk to you soon all right thank you yeah, bye that's our show for the week. Thanks to my guests and hats off to our producer, Freddie Joyner in New York, as well as Sharon Lamb in Hong Kong and Amanda Gomez in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio cravings. Check us out every day at breakviews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition of The Views Room. <laughs>